job, guys. As they find their seats, let's just say a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for the goodness of children. Thank you, Jesus, for reminding us that unless we take on the perspective of a child, we will never get or get into the kingdom. Help our mindsets not to keep us locked out of what is good and pure and holy and from you. Thanks for the children. Remind us not to be childish, but childlike, believing, hoping, receiving, delighting in you and your goodness, following you all the way home. In Jesus' name. We start a new series this morning on First and Second Peter. If you pull your outline out, I will get started on that. There's no tissues up here anywhere. Just throw me a box of tissues there, Carl. Thank you. Yeah. You don't always expect to get teary around kids, but they're great. Sometimes you cry because of the pain. <laughs> Other times it's just the goodness being around children. So we're starting today by laying the groundwork for First and Second Peter by looking at its author, uh, Peter, and what he went through and kind of looking at his character background and some things that happened to him earlier on that we have recorded for us in the New Testament before we come to these epistles. Because it's good to know if you get a letter or a note from somebody, the author who authored it makes a lot of difference, doesn't it? what they said, what they went through, what experience they've had. I've gotten notes from different people that I've worked for over the years. And some of those people had done my job. And so when I got a note from them, I paid close attention because they had done my job. They knew what they were talking about. And I had other people who supervised me who had never done my job. And it wasn't like I just flippantly threw it away, but I didn't pay as much attention because I felt like they don't really know They haven't been in my shoes. Well, I can tell you this author, Peter, has been in your shoes. He was a man who was anti-faith. He was a man who was totally pro-faith. He was a man who waffled around with his faith, but a man who finally was steadied in his faith by the Lord Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so this summer, as we look at this uh, book, or, or two letters, first and second Peter, uh, it's good to know a little bit about its author. That's what we're going to be doing today. I don't know about you guys, but I love summer, and I love summer vacations. Anybody else here love summer vacation? I love summer. I'm just, let's all say that word together real slow and delighty. Vacation. Let's just say it. Vacation is coming. Yes. You know? And uh, we're going to go on vacation to the beach and although I grew up landlocked, I love the beach. I love being there. I like the quietness in the morning. I like to hear the rush of the waters crashing in. I love to see dolphins playing in the water. I love to ride my bicycle down there on the beach in the morning on the flat. I love to have my cup of coffee and walk around in the evening. And uh, we're going to get to go to the beach near the end of the summer. And I'm looking forward to going to the beach with my family, uh, most of us together. 
my youngest son won't be able to go with us. He'll be vacationing with his grandparents because he's graduating this year. And part of his graduation gift is they take them back to where Grandma Oma came from, Czechoslovakia, Germany, Austria. So we get to go to the beach and he gets to go to Vienna. <laughs> What's up with that? No, really happy for him. He's made it through. And, uh, but summer's a great time. And I think it's great because it breaks up the routine that holds us in its clutches the rest of the year. Don't you kind of feel that way? Like, oh, I'm locked into all this. And then summer comes along. Ah, I get a little bit of freedom here. But if we're not careful, we can start to overdo our summer, right? Lots of people, lots of things, lots of places to go. I know in just the next week or so, we have my, our youngest son, Caleb, is graduating from Cumberland Valley. And he's getting ready to go on to college in the fall out at Western Colorado University. And so I told him, please don't major in smoking pot out there. Um, I don't really expect total abstinence, but just, okay. Enough said about that. If you're listening in this morning, son, just let that sink in. Um, but uh, really, First and Second Peter is really about being between two worlds, living between this world and all of its hardship and the new world, the new heaven and the new earth that's to come, that's a great hope, the great hope of the new heaven and the new earth. God's going to make everything right, everything that's broken and fallen and wounded and messed up and not in sync with God. Everything that's not cooperating with God will cooperate in the new heaven and the new earth. But it's really hard to live in the interchange of the broken place sometimes, especially when the broken places aren't just exterior, but they're interior to us too, okay? And so we're going to look at that. Um, We have something called Snapshot. Snapshot comes out every month or so, maybe two months. And it updates you on what's coming up at daybreak. If you don't get Snapshot, just write on your card, the back of your card, Snapshot. And it will be emailed to you and just click on it. And it's video driven. So it's it's, it's basically a newsletter that's video driven. So then you just click on it, watch the videos, you don't have to read a bunch of text, okay? Let's watch the snapshot of Carmen introducing this new series to us. Hi, I'm Carmen. I'm Director of Catalyst Ministries here at Daybreak, and I just wanted to give you a quick preview of what we have coming up this summer at Daybreak. Through the weekend service series this summer, we're going to be taking a look at the books of First and Second Peter, and we're doing a series called Living Between Two Worlds. And the reason that we're calling it Living Between Two Worlds, because in these two particular letters, um, Peter really addresses that tension that we live in as followers of Christ, as we live as citizens of this world, at the same time we're living as citizens of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And so through these two letters that Peter writes, we really take a look at how do we live out that tension as we live between these two worlds. It's going to be a great series with lots of good stuff to dive into. And not only do I hope that you'll come out on the weekend services, and engage, engage there, but I also hope that you'll engage with God personally this summer as well. To help you do that, we have a couple of resources, one of which is our Living Between Two Worlds bookmark. On the front, it just gives you the weekly titles of the, the messages that we'll be preaching and also the p- specific scriptures that we'll be looking at each week. Um, that way, you can read that scripture before you come to church on Sunday morning, or maybe you'll be on vacation one week and you won't be able to make it to Sunday church. You can then read it on your own and still continue to track with the series. On the back of the bookmark, we have a memory verse for you, as well as a prayer pattern that you can engage in this summer. 
Another resource that I'm recommending this summer is the Spiritual Disciplines Handbook. Great book, um, very practical tool for you to engage with God personally. Just helps you make some sense of spiritual practices. You don't read this book from beginning to end like you would a normal book, but instead it truly is a handbook where you flip to whichever practice it is that you'd like to, to learn a little bit more about, and it gives you some really practical instruction of how you can connect with God in a very, very real way. And so I hope you'll pick up a copy of that. It's available for purchase either at Ministry Central at Good Hope Road or in the Resource Center at Gettysburg Pike. We'll love for you to pick up a copy of that. I really hope that you'll be able to engage with God this summer um, because I think that's what's going to make it a great summer for all of us. So like I said, if you don't get Snapshot, you can, you can sign up for that by using your card today. I want you to pull out your, um, in your program guide, there should be a bookmark in there for the series. And uh, Carmen talked a little bit about that. You can use that bookmark either for yourself or you can use it if you're having a conversation with a friend about spirituality, about Christ or God or what they believe or about faith. Just, uh, you know, and you can invite them to come out with you some weekend. Uh, if you're going to do that, there's some extra ones out on the table. So you could keep that one for yourself and grab a couple extras and uh, hand those out to people as an invitation to come out with you to church this summer. We're going to dive right in today, okay, about encountering Jesus by looking at how Peter encountered him. Encountering Jesus helps me see that I've lived all over the map, that I've lived all over the map. I think Peter is one of the most interesting people that we have in the New Testament. Uh, He's arguably maybe one of the most well-known disciples Because he was involved in a lot of the action of the early church and getting things going and doing ministry and heading it up. And uh, he he had his share of ups and downs in his ministry. There was many ways that he was all over the map, especially at the beginning. But as we see him proceeding through the years and into his ministry, it seems like he becomes more and more refined and more and more focused and not living such a scattered life even as a Christian. And we notice at first he's a bit unpredictable. He's scattered, he's rough, he's aggressive. Uh, sometimes uh, he tend to speak before his turn uh, came up with the group, and he didn't always have his filter on. Know anybody like that? If you don't, it's probably you. <laughs> okay? Sometimes he just wasn't filtered, so he can't, tends to be all over the map. He was part of a subgroup of Jewish culture called the Zealots. How many know what a zealot is in Jewish culture? Oh, I'm going to fill you in a little bit here then. In Jewish culture, there were actually four different kind of demarcations socially of people in that time. You were a Pharisee, a Sadducee, and a scene or a zealot, okay? And um, the Pharisees were the guys who tried to set up a set of rules or regulations around God's law so that it wouldn't be broken. They thought if you make enough rules and regulations around the law, you never can get into the law and break it. That's why Pharisee kind of means to build a hedge. The word actually means a hedge around it. Okay, they were well-intentioned because they wanted to live their faith in this world without breaking any of God's covenantal law with them, but they became too entranced in the way of doing it was by making so many rules and regulations that you finally were going to fail at those, and they were, they were kind of guilt and shame-induced kind of things, okay? Then there were the Sadducees. The Sadducees uh, were often part of the Jewish ruling council, And um, the Sadducees were kind of keepers of the law, overseers a lot of times. 
they were the people who were the religious elite, okay? And then the Essenes, the Essenes were the group of people who would often either move in an enclave off and kind of make their own monastery in some way, make their own community outside of the community, or even within the community sometimes, they just had so many different practices not to be included with other people that they were an enclave unto themselves. And so this day, you hear the term, someone's Essenic. We'll often say that about somebody who is um, reclusive. You'll hear that, or you'll read it in a book, this person was Essenic. It means that they pull off to themselves. We often explain, or, or we see introverts that way. People will use that word for an introvert. They're Essenic. They go off and into themselves. And they have kind of a, an enclave unto themselves. And they saw that as a way of keeping themselves pure from the world, okay? And then there were the zealots. The zealots said, we're living in the world, but soon the Messiah will come. And when he does, we're taking it over. We're taking it over. And they actually had their, their treatises and stuff were all about when the Messiah comes, we're taking over. We've got the militia formed. They had stocked uh, different um, implements and weapons for warfare, kind of hidden out in different parts of the kingdom, and they were ready to go. That's why when we see Peter in the garden, remember when he grabs the sword and cuts the ear off of Malchus' servant, uh, right? In the garden, he's doing what a zealot would do. The coup is on. We're taking over. The Messiah's here. We're not putting up with this stuff anymore. And so he didn't really, zealots didn't often understand that there was going to be a, a here and not now, not, but not yet fully now part of the kingdom. That the kingdom would come in power with the second coming of Christ and in the end of time. And so Peter was a zealot. And so not only did it maybe his wiring and his personality, but also the people group that he belonged to made him feel a lot of zeal. And so he led this kind of up and down lifestyle. If we look at some of the mile markers of his lifestyle, some of the things in his life map, the first thing was is that when Christ called him, he left a lifestyle of leading his own business. He probably, with his brother Andrew, they were leading the family business, but most probably he was in charge and Andrew was the second command following him, given the way that, that he acted. And they, were, they, had, they had fishing boats and a fishing business, and they says that he left it immediately. They dropped their nets and they followed Jesus on this life-changing journey. And so he's used to being in control, but he immediately relinquishes control. So he's a little bit of a person who struggles probably with control. And who's in charge? And is Jesus in charge or am I in charge? He was a water walker, but he was also a water sinker. <laughs> we often forget that he walked on water. We say he sunk. No, he walked for a while. That was pretty cool. You know, there's an old song that says, and a refrain, if we keep my eyes on Jesus, I can walk on water. And that's really the teaching of that passage. Sometimes we just say, oh, he sunk, he was faithless. He's like, we're all faithless too. Let's all be faithless and sink. You know, and we have songs, we write songs about how faithless we are and how faithful God is. And I can be faithless and a sinner. And we sing those songs and give ourselves a pass, right? And so Peter struggled. Up and down. One minute, I'm walking on the water. Next minute, I'm sinking. But when Jesus grabs my hand, what happened? Pulls him back up and into the boat with Christ, okay? He gave us the good confession that we learned at Easter. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. He was the first person in all of humankind to articulate 
The good confession that still comes down to this day that feeds the church of Jesus Christ until his return. And that is, you are the Christ, Jesus, the Son of the living God, and we put our faith and our trust and our hope in you. As a matter of fact, in that passage, Jesus said to him, he he affirmed him, he said, you know what, Peter? Good for you, but you didn't discern that on your own. God the Father, through the Holy Spirit, gave you the good confession that we still say down to today, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so there he is, the announcer, Peter the confessor. Peter, whose mantra still comes down to us today. He was the Jesus defender. He was the ear chopper. We just talked about that a minute ago. So he's somebody who, in his great zeal for Christ, all of a sudden acts out, And in his power, he's going to bring the kingdom. And Jesus says, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord God. Oh, I bring the kingdom. He was a denier of Christ. Even after following him for three years, he sits around a fire, warming himself while Jesus sits in chains within earshot and three times denies Christ. And Jesus looks him right in the eye as the rooster crows after the third time. And so he's been going all over the map, up and down. At times he's committed strong, compassionate, God-honoring. At other times he's brash and cowardly and fearful and denying and rejecting. And I think that he was, uh, this is my conjecture, by reading the scriptures, that he suffered from something that you and I suffer from, which causes us to toggle between faith and hope and despair because we live in a broken place. And sometimes that broken place is inside of us. Peter was all over the map because he was toggling between God's mission and intention for his life over here and his own shadow mission over here. So here's God's intention and mission for Peter's life. And when he follows God's mission wholeheartedly, when he just freely surrenders, when he steps out of the boat in faith and keeps his eyes on Jesus, and he's just doing the mission because the intention of his soul is just to do what God wired me to do for his glory, he pushes forward. But over here is the shadow mission. And the shadow mission is I do those same things, but I do them out of a different motive. And the motive is to fulfill me and to bring glory in some sense to me, to bring fulfillment to me. I think that happens to us because we have unattended wounds inside of us. Peter had wounds that had not been attended to inside of him. And when we don't attend to, with God's help, the wounds that are within us, they create within us a shadow mission. Our intention about why we do what we do messes up how we do what we do because we're doing it out of the motive of we're trying to heal ourselves. We're trying to take care of ourselves. We're trying to do work for God, and somehow within that, God will like us or accept us or bring us into his family because we're on this performance track with God. It's all about intentions. Whose dream are we fulfilling? God's, or do we have, are we just trying to attend to our own wounds inside of us? I notice this because there's two different fires that Peter found himself around. Now, it's interesting that the one fire is the fire in the courtyard, and that's where he has the, the very famous denial of Christ, you know? How would you like to be Peter and be remembered for that? 
Most of you, if I say Peter, you go, oh, the guy who denied Jesus three times in the courtyard. Yes, great, yeah. How would you like to have that on your jersey the rest of your days, okay? And then we have the other fire. And the other fire over here is the fire where Jesus is roasting fish on the beach side. The sun is coming up. The disciples have moved back to fish. They've gone away from fishing for men. They've gone back to fishing for perch. And Jesus is over. He's resurrected. He's making fish. They don't recognize him at first. They're not catching anything out here. And he invites them over. I don't know how Jesus even got the fish. I don't even know how he made the fire. I mean, he's the son. maybe he just walked over to the water and said, fish, jump into my hands. Big ones. Oh, yes, you look tasty. We'll take you over today and roast you on the fire. So Peter finds himself around these two fires. What's common about the fire is a very specific word in Scripture that's used for the kind of fire that it was. Many fires in those days were just made from extra wood that was laying around, things that were not saved up, small trees that were cut down, that kind of thing. But these kind of fires were actually made out of almost a substance that was somewhat like our coal or anthracite, kind of like it, not exactly the same. And these fires, both of them, using these very specific words, were fires that would not go out easily. They were fires that would burn on and on. Have you ever had a fire that you tried to put out and it wouldn't go out? You put some more water on, you're at the campground, you put some more water on, and it just won't go out. You know, and you're like, I want to go to sleep, and the fire won't go out. It was a fire like that, a fire that won't go out easily. That same word that's used there kind of is, throws us back to the fires of the Old Testament, which were the purification fires like in the book of Isaiah. Remember when Isaiah is before the throne of God and it talks about the fire of God and the angel takes a coal from the fire and brings it to Isaiah's lips and he heals him because Isaiah confesses, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live in a whole land of people who lie, cheat, and steal unclean lips. And so that very specific sin is cleansed. That pattern of lying and sin is cleansed in Isaiah. And he's to be now to be a truth teller to the people. Okay? That's that same type of fire. It's a purifying. It's a fire that burns and won't go out, has a hard time being put out. And it's a fire that's used for purification. So don't miss that. That's all part of sitting around. And so there is Peter sitting at the first fire. And the first fire is a place that he's in the shadows. It says in scripture that he followed Jesus from a distance. But then he warmed himself by the fire that the soldiers made. And we know from scripture that Jesus was sitting within earshot. Because Jesus looks him right in the eye after the third denial. Even though it's dark and the sun's going down. They're sitting around this fire. He's sitting in the shadows, but he's still sitting with the master. And he's sitting at a fire that will burn but won't go out. I think there's a significance there that sometimes we miss. There are fires inside of us. There are hot coals inside of us that drive us in our shadow mission. There are wounds within that we are trying to attend to on our own. I'll heal it on my own. I'll get my own hot coal. I'll read these five books. I'll do this therapy. I'll do this. And all that stuff, all those things are good if they're combined with the healer. But many times they're not. We're trying to heal ourselves 
at our own fire of hot coals. And we find that we're denying the Christ who's sitting at the same fire with us. We're stiff-arming him. Notice the second fire. The second fire is made by Jesus. It's initiated by him. They don't even know who Jesus is. They're out fishing. They're not catching anything. They've gone back to this whole, I don't know how they put the whole company back together that quickly. Because according to scripture, they didn't even sell off all the assets when they started. They just left the nets and everything, lock, stock, and barrel, and left. And I imagine somebody else came along when they left all the stuff and said, yippee-yay, what a great day for me. I don't even have to buy all the infrastructure of this company. I got boats and nets and all kinds of stuff. So they had to go and either, back day they probably rented the boat and leased the nets, because that's usually how it happened. So they rented and they leased them, and they're out fishing and they're catching nothing. And they must be thinking something like this. Oh great, we were fishers of men, now we're back to being fishers of perch, and we can't even get that right. We're catching nothing. And I bet you inside of themselves there was a great sadness. Because for three years, they had walked with, slept with, ate with, ministered with the master and commander of the universe, Jesus Christ. And he had shared his own soul. He had shared the secrets of heaven and hell with them and this life and then one to come. And there's no doubt a huge sadness, a gap inside of them as they rode back to the shoreline that morning and hoisted the sail. They didn't even recognize him on the beach when he called out to them. And then they started to recognize him and flood to him. And he already had the fire built. He already had breakfast made. And they sat down with him and around that fire, Jesus takes the hot coals and he begins to heal the hidden wounds of Peter. When he says to him, Peter, do you love me? You know I love you. Peter, do you love me? You know I love you. Peter, do you know, do you love me? Peter's starting to get a little, his awareness scale, his, his awareness is not real good. He's forgetting about the fire that he just sat at not too long ago, which was a fire of denial, a fire of I'll do it on my own, a fire of distance from Jesus. And now he's sitting around a new fire but he's forgotten. And so Jesus says something very specific to Peter. If you love me, do what I do. Feed my sheep. Don't beat my sheep. Don't abandon my sheep. Don't abuse my sheep. Feed and lead my sheep. Help them be healed the way that I'm healing you right now at this fire. And Jesus takes a metaphorical hot coal. In the Old Testament, they would have taken a real one. And he puts it on the soul of Peter. And he cauterizes a wound. And where the wound used to be, it's just a scar, reminding him that the master reached deep within, deep within. You see, when we encounter Jesus, he doesn't want to just get our behaviors right. He doesn't want us just not being like those people in the world in our behaviors. He wants to reach deep within and transform. 
He wants to reach deep within and heal wounds. He wants to deep, reach deep within so that the shadow mission begins to die down and the mission with God begins to rise up and the new fire that burns in our belly is for Jesus and a passion to follow him, lock, stock, and barrel 24-7 until we leave or he comes again. That's what a healing from Jesus does. He wants to replace it. He wants to work with us. 1 John 1, 7 says these words to us about this healing fire of God. It says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, purifies us from all sin. It talks about We have to decide what fire do we want to sit by? Do we want to sit by the fire in the shadows, distance from Jesus, where we'll deny him? Or do we want to sit in the fire at the beach with Jesus, eating fish with the other followers, being empowered by his spirit, being healed by him, being filled up with the Holy Spirit of God so that we're transformed by him? What kind of interchange, what kind of encounter we'll have with Jesus is dependent on which fire we choose to associate ourselves with. And Jesus calls us just as he did the first disciples to come and sit by the fire with him. My question is this, this summer, will you make time for the campfire moments with Jesus? Campfire moments where you sit with him, where you carve out time with him. I talked to a gal after the first service and she was like, I'm so busy, I just don't have that much time to carve out. And I just sat and listened to her for a while, and I said, put my hand on her shoulder, I said, there is no condemnation, therefore, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Stop condemning yourself. Do you have a minute today to sit by the fire with Jesus? I think I do. Start with a minute. Move from this fire to that fire. Start where you're at. Jesus didn't tell Peter and the other disciples, get over here, build a fire yourselves, cook yourselves something, you bunch of losers. He showed up with grace. He cooked the meal. He's prepared a meal for us. Psalm 23 says, he's prepared a meal for us in the presence of our our enemies. Our cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Because God is calling us to a fire this summer where we meet him. That fire may be a parking lot on your way to work where you take an extra five minutes each day. And you scoot off into the parking lot. And you just sit there with Jesus. And you listen to a worship song. And you read a verse of scripture and it may be the exact same verse of scripture all summer long that Jesus wants to burn into you take the moments take the hot coal let it light a fire within that heals and burns let it start a fire that won't go out that is the message of the coals today for us Let it start a fire that will not go out as we encounter Jesus this summer. The second point I want to talk to you about is this. Encountering Jesus helps me see that I need the Holy Spirit's navigation. You know, first thing, when I encounter Jesus, I kind of figure out I've been all over the place. But encountering Jesus helps me see that I need the Holy Spirit's navigation. 
So not so long after Jesus had had this particular conversation, they're sitting there, there's this total recall of Peter. I mean, you can't miss this, just total recall. He's saying, you thought you were a loser, you thought you were done, you thought you had denied me. I say, feed my sheep. I'm putting you in first in command. I'm reinstating you, Peter. So he does that. And then he tells them, hey, in not too long, I will be leaving you. And when I leave you, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. So go and wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes on you. Now that sounds a little bit eclectic and out there to me. Where are we supposed to wait at? What are we supposed to do while we're waiting? How long should we wait? What will it look like when the Holy Spirit comes? We've been with you. You taught us about the Holy Spirit. We've experienced some of the spirits moving around us, but mostly we've been with you. And when you're not with us, we don't feel the presence of God. When you're gone and you were defeating Satan, death, and hell on the cross, we didn't feel the same way we felt when we were with you. So what's it going to look like when the Holy Spirit comes? What are we waiting for? And Jesus says, you don't get to ask those questions. Go and wait. Did you ever realize there's some times where we ask a question of God and he very much will tell us, you don't get to ask that one. He'll say to us like he said to Job, excuse me, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Oh, you're not God and I am? You don't get to ask that one. You get to ask a lot of questions, but there's some you don't get to ask. Go and wait. That's what you get to ask about, those instructions. So he gives them those instructions, and they go and they wait. The Holy Spirit comes on them. There seems to be this manifestation of what? Of all things, fire. (laughs) Isn't it interesting that God uses fire again? It looks like he's great. Tongues of fire that are whipping down on them. I mean, the Hunter Games has nothing on this act right here. Right? Nothing on it. Some of you guys have seen that movie where they look like they're on fire or whatever. They have nothing on it because it wasn't an act. It was happening. And the manifestation of the Spirit, the Spirit wasn't the fire. That was the manifestation of the Spirit. It's like when the dove came and landed on Jesus. The Spirit wasn't the dove. It was a manifestation. It was an outward sign of the Spirit being there. Okay, so there's this outward sign of the Spirit being there. And these, these people, there, there are people in Jerusalem that are God-fearing Jews from all over the world. Guess what they speak? Different languages. Okay? Their only common language may have been a bit of Hebrew that they each knew. Okay? But many God-fearing Jewish people from the out, other parts of the world didn't know as much Uh, Hebrew as those who would have been in the outlying areas in the world. So there they are from all over the place. They're in Jerusalem for something called the Feast of Pentecost. And on the day of the Feast of Pentecost, which Pentecost is God tabernacling with us. God came to be with us. So on the day of God with us, the Holy Spirit comes in fire saying, God's with you. I'm here. This is the Feast of Pentecost. I'm here. They start to speak all these different languages of all these different people. So what happens? 
all the different people are hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ in their own language. That is what the gift of tongues is for, so that the gospel makes sense to people from other languages. It's not to build our, read First and Second Corinthians. Paul explains it very well in there. And so this is happening, and it's like, wow, Pentecost. God is tabernacling with us. God is moving amongst us. And I understand the good news of Jesus in my own language. And God is moving. And so somebody says, this is wild. This looks a little funky to me. It almost sounds like these people are drunk. Now, I don't know if you've ever been with a drunk person. I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands. But when someone's drunk, sometimes it does kind of sound like they have their own language, right? Because they say weird things, stuff doesn't fit the context. They, you know, I used to you know, hang out with a guy and I always told him, you drink courage because you just start to speak really verbosely when you, you know, you speak out when you're drunk, you know, just stop drinking the courage and bring it back down a little bit. So I'm sure that it's kind of commonplace. They thought these people are wasted. And so Peter stands up and he says, these people are not wasted. They won't be wasted till at least nine tonight. No, he didn't say it. <laughs> he said, they are not drunk. They are filled with the Holy Spirit and they have a supernatural empowerment now to bring the goodness of God to an earth that's far from him. And the earth was so far from God, they couldn't even see the goodness of God when he's working. And so Peter stands up and he begins to explain this. Here's Peter who went from being all over the map. Remember him? And all of a sudden he's living this guided life so much so that he gets up and gives the most concise message that covers the whole Old Testament and the, and the power of the resurrection and pushes on into the New Testament so much that thousands of people in the moment kneel and bow and choose to follow Jesus Christ. Still the greatest treasure remains for those who gladly choose you now, the song says, right? And so they're gladly choosing Jesus now. How do we get this guy who was all over the map and sat at two different, how does he get there? The power of the Holy Spirit, the person and work of the Holy Spirit. The healing power of the Holy Spirit starts moving through him, in him, on him, and through him. He starts living a journey navigated by the Spirit and not himself. He starts to live a journey and starts to ask himself questions like, am I willing to let the Holy Spirit navigate not only the big picture but the small picture? The next step as much as the next five years. Or will I put him off? Holy Spirit, come and lead me today. It's as though he chose a new GPS system, a new way of navigating life. Uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, myself and two other staffers, myself and Jason Fickus and Carmen Biggs, took a road trip to New York City, to Queens, New York. We went to something called Emotionally Healthy Leadership. I went there because I'm all over it, and I was just helping those guys out. That, that's a joke. Some of you didn't pick up on that. That's a joke. We went there to learn about emotionally healthy spirituality and leadership. How to lead a contemplative life and how to be well on the inside. 
how to be healed by God, and then how to follow him by having times where we stop by the fires with Jesus and read scripture and meditate on God and follow through with that and have his spirit infused into us. So we were going there, but we had to go to Queens, New York, which I think really was disturbing Jason. Any of you who know Jason knows that Jason needs things to be pretty straightforward. And, you know, uh, Queens, New York is not pretty straightforward. I forget how many countries of the world are, are in Queens, but tons of them. And we're going to this church that's multicultural, multi-denominational. It meets in the old Elks Lodge. They bought the old Elks Lodge in Queens on Queens Boulevard. So we're going there, and he says to me, well, you know, we're driving up there, and it was like four weeks beforehand. He came to me, and he's like, do you have all the maps to get up there? To? And I said, well, I have a GPS. It's an old one that my father-in-law gave me, and he couldn't use it anymore. And, you know, when it storms, it goes out pretty much like everybody else's GPS. So after about two weeks, he made a couple more comments, and I thought, you know, he's probably right. I, I, need, to, I need to print out the directions. So I printed out the directions, and actually the truth is I didn't print them out. I said, Amy, who was my assistant, will you please print out the directions for me to get to Queens, New York? And she did. And then I went and looked in my garage, and I still had it. I had a Rand McNally Road Atlas. How many of you even know what that is, what a road atlas is, okay? And um, so I had that, put that in the car, and we made off for New York City, the three of us. They were going to ride the train back because I had another thing to do after that up near Nyack, New York, for a couple days. And uh, so we're, get, we're getting there. We get through the Holland Tunnel. We get down through Canal Street. If you've ever been there, it can be a little bit confusing for a guy like me. And I always rely on Debbie. Debbie's great in the city, New York City. She gets in the city, and she can get you anywhere. I can't. I can get you lost. That's where I can get you. I can get you one place, lost. So we get in there, and we're, we, we actually get to Queens Boulevard. We get off Queens Boulevard, and I said, Amy said we're staying at the old Pan American Hotel that I stayed at before, but now it's called Hotel Q. They renamed it. And, uh, and it's down here. I can see it, and I can still see the big words down there, Pan American on the top of this multi-story building. I'm like, that's where we're headed. But the GPS keeps saying, at your next convenience, please turn around. Your destination is back to the left. And I'm like, it can't be. That's the Pan American. So we're all going toward the Pan And she just keeps insisting, the GPS. Because I always put a nice lady's voice on my GPS. And that probably brings up some other wounds. Anyhow. So we finally, I'm like, I'm compelled to follow the GPS. And I turn around. And what do we see? Going the other direction, underneath the viaduct. There it is. Hotel Q. We pull up. We walk in. They have our reservation. We have a place to stay for the night. And we had to talk Jason into walking to the church back and forth the next day without security. (laughs) The point is this. Even us together, we thought we knew where we were headed. And sometimes even in the body of Christ, even the most prayerful, godly people sometimes will say, well, it It really seems we should do this. And the Spirit is saying, you know what? The answer's back here. And it looks just a little different. And it's a fire over here where Jesus resides. See, you could get there on your own. But you can't get back here without me. And I'm working some deeper stuff 
here than just getting you there. I want to be with you. What did Jesus say to his disciples? And lo, I will be with you to the end. Do you ever think that God might want to be with you this summer? Of all the people that you're inviting to go on summer vacation or picnics with, God wants to be with you this summer. He wants you to rack a couple of logs into the chimney. He wants to sit out back with you. He wants to go to the beach with you. He wants to jump on your bike. He wants to get in your kayak. He wants to go fishing with you. He wants to go to work with you. He wants to meet you at your workstation. He wants you to take a break at lunch just for two minutes and stop and lift your hands up as a living sacrifice to him. He's crazy about you. He's caught some fish. He's built a fire. And he's calling you to a total recall. Come meet me on the shoreline. Come be with me. I don't know about you, but with summer just around the corner, and I'm driving around the other day, and I'm noticing that there's a lot more people, as Chuck Rhodes would say, out and about. I like to watch Chuck Rhodes because he graduated with my brother from high school. That's my only claim to fame. There's a lot of people out there. The other morning, I was like, I was getting so irritated by all the people that are out there. Then I had to go to Lowe's, and there were lots of people there. Then I had to go to Walmart, and there was lots of people there. Then I had to go to Wegmans, there were lots of people there. And I said, these people are bothering me. <laughs> in the wintertime, there are not this many people around. And then it occurred to me, all the college students are back. They're not at university. They're back home. That the populace goes boom, and they all have automobiles, and they bother me. Could they learn how to drive the automobiles the way I do, the right way? <laughs> I don't think it's our fault in South Central Pennsylvania that we can't navigate on and off ramps. You know why? <laughs> you know why? It's not our fault. We got ripped off when they put in the Eisenhower system. They gave us a 10-foot ramp. They cut back. Pennsylvania don't need a 10-foot. I don't know what happened. So now we don't know how to use on-ramps and off-ramps. No, it's not safe. Can't be. They've just trained us. So we stopped. <laughs> at the end of an on-ramp. I don't know why. Now I'm really getting into trouble. You're going to encounter a lot of people this summer. Will you intentionally encounter Jesus? Because he's waiting. The fire's burning. The worship's happening. The food's on the table, and it's good stuff. And the healing is ready to come. And he'll touch your wounds, and he'll dress them and heal them over time. And the shadow mission will die, and the mission of Christ will rise up as he plants a holy fire within you. I want us to talk to God for a moment in prayer, and then I want us to do the prayer pattern out loud together. But I want us just to stop for a moment, a holy fire moment, and be called into the presence of God. Let's do that together. Lord, I thank you that we just don't have to speed on and off off ramps of life but we can stop 
get off at rest stops with you. Lord, there's no condemnation about that. You're called, there's a call in it. You're not condemning us because we don't spend long enough. We just need to get there. Then you can determine how long we stay there or not. Thanks for building the fire. Thanks for calling us. Thanks for cooking a great meal for us in the presence of our enemies. Thank you for when we sit there having overflowing cups of goodness and mercy from you. Help us to get there often this summer and encounter you, the living Christ. As the old song goes, I need thee, oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior. I come to thee. That's our prayer this summer. Amen, amen. The prayer pattern, it's up here. I just want us to read this just kind of from our soul. I know it's the first time you're seeing it, so maybe you can't quite do that because you're not as familiar with it, but it arises out of First and Second Peter. And it's kind of some of the main themes. For me, I like looking at scripture and praying some of the, it, it informs my prayer. That's just a preference. That's not a, you don't have to, if you don't like that, that's fine. It's just a preference that I have. But I like, I like this kind of thing. So let's just read it together and see if anything resonates with you. See if it, it could draw you close to God's fire this, this summertime. Jesus, as I live in the tension between the hardship of this world and the hope of your kingdom, teach me to be pure in my mind and actions, secure in who you've called me to be, ready to share the hope that I have in you, joyful in suffering, humble in my faith, so that I can reflect your light as I live between two worlds. Amen and amen. Take a couple of minutes and just look at the response card. Maybe fill out a response or a prayer request there on your response card. I want everybody to pull that out right now, your response card, and just complete it in the next few moments while this song plays for you. And if you realize any time between now and the end of the service, I need someone to pray with me. I need someone to help me get near the fire of God. At any time, just get up from your seat, go through the double doors in the back and down the hallway, and the prayer partners will be there to meet you just down the hallway from the cafe. They don't ask a lot of questions. They don't try to solve things. They just listen to you and try to get you by God's fire and prayer. Take a couple moments. Pull your soul close to God.